This is the word of God. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. You may have a seat. As you do, would you join with me as we pray to our Lord and Savior? Lord Jesus, as we read in your word from Mark's gospel, we acknowledge your supreme authority over all things. Not just the wind and the waves, not just the rain, but also the demons and the unclean spirits. You possess all authority in heaven and on earth, over all things seen and unseen, over all things natural and spiritual. And for that, you are worthy of all our praise, our honor, and glory. You are not only Lord and King, but you are also merciful. And we thank you that you had mercy on us, just as you showed mercy to the demoniac. By offering your perfect and sinless life as a substitutionary atonement for the sins of all who would repent and place their trust in you. 
as objects of your saving grace, would you help us to respond like the demon-possessed man, to be compelled to proclaim to others the good things that you have done for us. May we, as your church, shine the light of Christ as a bright and visible witness of the gospel in our homes, in our school, and in our workplaces. May we lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way, that our lives may testify of your redeeming work in us. We pray the same for your church around the world. We think of places like India, where COVID has taken so many lives. May you embolden believers there to live and proclaim the gospel. And would you open the eyes of the blind to see that there are not many gods, but one true God, who is the Savior of all men, and who desires all to come to the knowledge of the truth. We also pray for our nation that continues to reel in the wake of the death of George Floyd, and this week the conviction of Officer Chauvin. It should not come as any surprise that there is so much wrong in our society when we as a nation have long ago rejected your word and abandoned your authority over us. With the growing demand for justice and accountability, as many are quick to pick up stones and cast judgments on social media. We as a church want to remain humble and to come under your word and to pray for your mercy and justice according to your will. We pray for the families of those whose lives have been lost. We can only imagine the pain they are suffering, and we mourn with them. They need your comfort, but so much more. They need your salvation as they come face to face and grapple with the stark reality of a life cut short. As death is ultimately not the result of a virus or a knee or a gunshot wound, but it is the result of the sin that resides in every one of us. At the same time, we want to continue to pray for the salvation of Officer Chauvin and for the perpetrators of the mass shootings over the past month. Unlike those whose lives have been taken, whose destinies eternally have been sealed, they still have hope and opportunity for repentance. And so we ask for your mercy upon them. As they await trial and sentencing, may they fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell and find salvation in you who gave your life as a ransom for true justice. We also continue to pray for members of our congregation. There are a number in our midst who are dealing with health issues or financial struggles. We think of Jonathan Park and his family as his father is undergoing cancer treatment. We pray for our sister, Sarah Fong, whose grandfather's health has been declining as well. We pray for those who have welcomed newborns, most recently Clarence and Anna, as they deal with the challenges that come with the responsibility of raising and shepherding little ones in this early stage of life. We pray for members who've had a hard time coming out to church, whether it be out of fear or something else, would they not be out of sight, out of mind? And in the days ahead, 
Would you help us to look to you in faith as we consider how we might gather together as your household in loving obedience to your word? Finally, as we come to the exposition of your word, would you prepare our hearts to receive your truth? May we receive it not as the words of man, but as the word of God. Help us to hear it and obey your word that is brought to us through your servant, Pastor Mark, so that we might behold your beauty, your lordship, your greatness, and your goodness in our lives. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Ted, for shepherding us in prayer, and Peter and the praise team, the AV team, just for allowing us to come before the Lord and enjoy His presence. What a joy it is to see a full house. If you won't tell Sarah Cody, I won't. And uh, that's a, such a, an encouragement and a blessing to be able to come into the presence of the Lord. Christ is real. He is alive. His Spirit is with us. And we gather in His name. And it's a privilege that many people around the world are not able to enjoy or experience, and not because of COVID, simply because of persecution. And we need to be mindful of those dear saints around the world. And also, as Ted mentioned, to pray for our brothers and sisters in India at this time, especially the many believers who are there who face many, many challenges uh, to honor the Lord in the face of things that are hard and difficult. Well, during COVID, one of the names that I hear frequently in the Chin household, excuse me here as I work on my pulpit here, one of the names I hear frequently in the Chin household is the name Jeff. And when our boys are doing their math lessons and they get to really, really big numbers with lots of zeros at the end, I'm frequently asked, what's that Jeff guy doing with all his money? And why isn't he giving more to help poor people around the world? And sometimes I'll hear, is that Jeff guy a Christian? And when a package gets delayed or damaged, I hear a shout that says, Dad, would you call that Jeff guy and tell him we're not giving him any more money until he gets it right? He's not doing a very good job. And needless to say, you know, I don't think Jeff is listening to me, but um, in light of this, this past April, April 15th, when that Jeff guy, in his annual shareholder letter, his final one as the CEO of Amazon, stated that he had one last thing of utmost importance that he felt compelled to teach. And he was talking about teaching the shareholders first, but then the world. One last thing of utmost importance that he felt compelled to teach. And so when I saw this, it caught my attention. And that one last thing that Jeff Bezos felt compelled to teach the shareholders of Amazon and the world 
was that distinctiveness and originality. Distinctiveness and originality, the key qualities that ensure value, survival, and success in life, in politics, in business, and in the tech world. Distinctiveness and originality require a tremendous amount of energy and hard work to maintain. And without this tremendous energy and hard work, everything, especially distinctiveness and originality, the catchwords of our industry and our world here, without this tremendous energy and hard work, distinctiveness, originality, and everything else like it, dies. And to help make this point, Jeff quoted Richard Dawkins, the famous Oxford evolutionary biologist, the angry atheist, and the author of The God Delusion and The Blind Watchmaker. And uh, I'm going to ask my AV team if you can help me with my first slide, if possible. Thank you. And you can read this here. And I don't usually put lies from the pit up on the big screen, but I think it's important for us to hear what Richard Dawkins and Jeff Bezos has to say. And the reason I do it is because we live these lies on a regular basis. Richard Dawkins says, Staving off death is a thing that you have to work at. If living things didn't work actively to prevent it, and that's death, they would eventually merge into their surroundings and cease to exist as autonomous beings. That is what happens when they die. Now, these words of Richard Dawkins and and Jeff, that guy Jeff, about securing life and autonomy and independence and value and staving off death and becoming just like anything else, And to do so with hard work and tremendous energy, I'm sure you'll agree, this is nothing new and this is nothing particularly profound. In many ways, it is just simply a reassertion of the American dream and the immigrant dream that many of us here, myself included, grew up with. It's that ethos. If you work hard... You'll go far. Without initiative and hard work, you won't accomplish anything. No pain, no gain. And the list goes on and on and on. Right? If you don't get good grades, as Charlie Brown says, you're not going to get into a good college. So why do we study to get good grades? So we can get into a good college. So we can study hard and get a graduate degree. So we can go out and get a good job. So we can work hard and study hard. And you know what goes on and on. This is nothing new, brothers and sisters. This is the American dream and this is the immigrant dream. And if we're honest with ourselves, brothers and sisters, this is the ethos. Not just of Silicon Valley, but this is the ethos of our fitness. This is the ethos of our education. This is the ethos of our careers. This is the ethos, many times, of our families and our ministries and our worship. The value we bring is based on our initiative and how hard we work. And it's a partial truth. But partial truths are lies. As we come to God's word, and as we come to Genesis this morning, and as we come to the cross, 
the creator of the universe himself shows us that at the end of the day, this is just the same old half-truth and lie that the devil has been selling us since the garden. And it's a lie that leads us away from the beauty and the truth and the good news of God's word. And it's a lie that leads us away from the truth and grace of a beautiful and wonderful God. And it's a lie that moves us away from the precious gift and blessing of His Word. And this brings us to our first point this morning. And AV team, if you could help me with my slides this morning. I need all the help I can get, so thank you. And there's a two-part to this, this first point. One of it you don't have on your slides. And, and the beginning is that life is the precious gift and blessing of God's Word. Life is the precious gift and blessing of God's Word. And for that reason, this is the Word that we were created by, called to, and commanded to live by. We're created, called, and commanded to live by this Word because this is the Word that has blessed us and given us life. We owe everything to the Word of God. We owe everything to God. We have no rights. We are indebted, and we are born into this world, indebted to all that God has given us and given us through His Word. We are blessed. And make no mistake, we've been blessed... Not by our hard work, or our initiative, or our originality, or our distinctiveness, or our gifts and talents, or all the things that we think that bring value to the table. We're blessed, brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, by a gracious and good God, and by the gift of His Word. That, brothers and sisters, is the testimony of Genesis 1 and 2. That's the testimony of the entirety of God's Word. And brothers and sisters, that is very much the testimony of the cross and the good news of Jesus Christ and the Gospel. And the clear implication of this is that we cannot live without God's Word. You just look at Richard Dawkins and you look at all this other stuff. God is not part of the equation at all. It's all about us. We cannot live without God's Word, and the Word we are created and called and commanded to live by is not Jeff's or Richard Dawkins or your Word or mine, or our opinions or the opinions of our bosses, our supervisors, or anyone else. It is the Word of God. At the end of the day, that's the only Word that matters. And Jeff and Richard Dawkins are going to find that out when they come in their deathbed, just like Steve Jobs found that out. But as we come to Genesis 3, this is the very word and truth the first man and woman are running from. And if we're honest with it, brothers and sisters, many times in our education, our careers, our families, and all the other things of this world and our relationships, we're running to those things because we're running from the same thing. We're running from the reality and truth that the only word that really matters in this life, the only word that separates life from death, good from evil, light from darkness, is not our word or these things. It's the word of the Lord. And all we're doing is we're just delaying things for a little bit. We are, as Richard Dawkins would say, staving off death, maybe pushing it off a little bit, at least in our minds. 
And it's this Word, this Word of God, the truth of God's Word, the blessing of God's Word that the Lord God confronts the first man and woman and us with in Genesis 3, 8 through 19. And He shows us, run as we might, we cannot outrun the Word of the Lord. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Genesis 3 and we'll read from verses 8 through 19. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you? That you were naked. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it. All the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Genesis 3.8, it opens up with the first man and woman essentially running and hiding from the sound of the Lord God. Why? Because in Genesis 2.16, and I'm going to take you back a little bit by way of review, after the Lord God puts the first man in the Garden of Eden, He gives the first man a very simple command. And what is that command? It's a command that gets repeated throughout the first three chapters, or the first two chapters. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. I want you to bookmark a little bit how often the Lord uses the word eat. Because it's going to come up and it's going to be relevant to the curse that he gives. But in Genesis 3, 1 through 6, instead of hearing and obeying and living by this simple word of God, living by the word of God, how do we live by the word of God? 
Brothers and sisters, if we are not hearing and obeying God's word, we are not living by God's word. So let's make that clear. We are not hearing and obeying all of God's word. We are not living by the word of God. We are being Pharisees who pick and choose what's convenient and good and what makes us look good. Well, instead of hearing and obeying and living the entire word of God, the very simple word of God that God has given them, the first man and woman choose instead to hear and follow and live by the lies of the serpent. Lies that suggest that God's word is not true and that the initiative and innovation of men, apart from God's word, can provide a better life than God has given them. Originality and distinctiveness can make them like God. With the yacht and the empire and all the good homes that Jeff has. And so in verse 6, the first man and woman take and eat of the very tree that the Lord God had explicitly commanded and warned them not to. And immediately everything changes. But not in the way they had hoped or planned. And brothers and sisters, that is always the way the devil's lies and our sin and our idolatry ends. I thought it was a good idea at the time. I didn't think it would turn out this way. And all those other famous last words, that blame shift, that just say, if I knew it was this bad, I wouldn't have done it. But we know that that's not true because you know that when you and I sin, we do the same thing over and over and over again. And in verse 9 through 13, the first man and woman offer many words to explain and excuse why they disobey God's word. But as we come to verses 14 through 19, the Lord God shows the first man and woman in us. In the end, regardless of what you and I say, the only word and the final word that really matters is this word that we have been created and called And commanded to live by. And that word is obviously God's word. And it's not ours. And it is by this word in verse 17. That the Lord God personally. Personally. Holds Adam accountable. For what he has done. And brothers and sisters. In this life and in the next life. The Lord God will hold each one of us. Personally accountable. For everything that we have done and said. And Jesus makes this point in the New Testament. The Lord God personally holds Adam accountable for not living by his word. It's very simple. The Lord God personally holds each one of us accountable for hearing and obeying his word. And it is by this word that the Lord God judges and punishes the first man. And he does so by decreeing a curse on the ground or the soil. And it is a curse that brings the first man and us back to the truth that we run from. The truth that we run from with our education, our careers, our families, and our ministries. That without the blessing of God's word... We are nothing. Without the blessing of God's word, we are nothing. And that brings us to our second point for this morning. And AV team, if you could help me with that, that would be great. 
Without the blessing of God's Word, we are nothing. Thank you, ladies. I know it sounds incredibly simple, brothers and sisters. And I know it sounds incredibly obvious. Without the blessing of God's Word, we are nothing. And yet, brothers and sisters, let's look at our lives and say, do we really believe that and do we live that? Do we believe that Jesus and His Word is all we need for church and ministry? Do we really believe that Jesus and His Word is all that our families need here in Silicon Valley? Do we really believe that Jesus and His Word It's not just all we need, it's everything. That Ephesians 1 and 2, that with Jesus and His Word, we are most blessed of all people, having been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And if I'm honest with you, brothers and sisters, and I try to be, I struggle with that at times. Struggle with that in the church ministry. The elders here will tell you. They've told you many times where I call them up and ask for prayer because I feel I need something. And what I'm struggling with when I'm needing those things is do I really believe that Christ and His Word is all I need? And then we think of churches in probably places like India and other parts of the world that do not have children's programs and do not have buildings and do not have all the whistles and bells that we mourn and lament over in America. And we see that as God begins to take away things in our lives, as God begins to make things hard in our lives, and let's make no mistake, here in the Word, God makes it abundantly clear that the curse that comes that brings thorns and thistles and makes the first man, and by extension all of us, our life hard and difficult with toil and anxiety and suffering and pain. Make no mistake, God takes ownership for that. Full responsibility. You have a gripe with your job? Let's speak to the Lord. You have a gripe with your spouse? Let's speak to the Lord. You have a gripe with your children? Let's speak to the Lord. When the Lord makes our lives difficult, brothers and sisters, He brings home and starts to expose what we really love and what we trust in, what we value and what we esteem, what we believe is necessary for life and godliness. What we value and what we think is necessary and important. We live in a world, brothers and sisters, where a person's worth and what we value is frequently measured in dollars and the size of our bank accounts, the size of our homes, and the size and the beauty of our garages and our cars. We live in a world where value is about what can you do for me now? How much value do you bring to this ministry, to this church, to this table? 
It's interesting how Jesus goes in a very opposite direction and he tells his disciples to invite over to your home those people who cannot invite you back and who can do nothing for you. Now Jesus, in contrast, treasures and values and cares for the least among us. And reminds us that unless we become as little children, we cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. What a contrast, brothers and sisters, from the ethos that drives this world, the places we work in. Value. What can you do for me now? And it's by these standards. Just as aside, brothers and sisters, by the standards of what we just read through that guy Jeff and Richard Dawkins. How do we value people with special needs? whose energy for work is limited, whose capacity is limited, the amount of dollars and cents that they can bring to your ministry is probably, from the world standard, a deficit. And it's worth remembering, brothers and sisters, this value system, which is based on survival of the fittest, is exactly the standard and the way Hitler felt when he created gas chambers for those who were mentally retarded and had special needs. No value whatsoever. And sadly, brothers and sisters, if we're honest, many times that same mindset that paved the way to create gas chambers in the Third Reich pervades our hearts and ambitions in our homes, our families, our churches, and our worship. And we see this heart on display in Genesis 3. It's not new. We see this heart on display in the man's value system as he throws his wife under the bus. She no longer has any value or benefit to him. Only a chapter before, he's all excited and hot and bothered about a helper fit for him, singing her praises. But when the heat is on and when his life is filled with idolatrous sin, he throws her under the bus because she is no longer convenient to him. Brothers and sisters, how often does that mark our relationships? And if we're honest with ourselves, brothers and sisters, it's a pragmatic and self-serving and self-centered mindset that is not just everywhere, brothers and sisters. Very frequently, it's in our own hearts. And as we come to Genesis 3, 17 through 19... It is the actions that come from such a heart, such a selfish and self-centered heart that values and gives worth on whatever serves my covetous desires best that the Lord God personally judges and condemns. And He does so with a curse of the ground. A curse of the ground that will bring for Adam a new life and a new world of suffering, sorrow, and futility that ends with absolutely nothing but dirt. 4 verse 19, You are dust, and to dust you shall return. 
And as you read through the scriptures, you see this same theme come up over and over again, especially in the wisdom literature, in Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, the Psalms. Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers build in vain. Vanity, vanity, vanity. And it goes on and on. Especially in Ecclesiastes. By the man who had everything. Wise palaces, wealth and riches. And in the end, sees the foolishness. And the futility that ends in death. And this, this curse is the judgment and it is the reckoning of God's word for Adam. But brothers and sisters, it's also the reckoning and judgment for all who choose not to live by God's word. The Lord God in verse 19 makes it explicitly clear to Adam. This curse of the ground is because of you. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. You just look at how many times that pronoun you is used there. Repeatedly, the Lord is making this very personal indeed. I think that's what's so hard, brothers and sisters, in suffering. It's so hard when our lives are difficult, be it in the workplace, in family, or wherever it is, where we start to feel that pain. I had a family member who's not a believer, who studied world religions, and the point they made when they read the book of Job, they said, you know, we read about suffering in Buddhism, we read about suffering in all these other world religions, but when you get to the Bible, it is so personal. Yes, brothers and sisters, it is personal. And the Lord here is incredibly personal. He repeats that term to Adam many times you. This is personal. Maybe that's why we hate God so much. As the Lord God decrees a curse that involves the ground and that involves eating. In fact, he mentions eating in 17 through 19 no less than five times. What the Lord does is he points Adam and us back to Genesis 1 and 2. And he points us back to his word. The words that Adam chose to ignore and disobey and the words of blessing that show that the value and worth of a life is not determined, brothers and sisters, by what we can get, or what we can grasp, or what we can earn or eat. Brothers and sisters, do you see the value system in our society? It's all about what you can consume and get and make for yourself. And if you create... You create it for the same reason, to accumulate wealth. And, you know, brothers and sisters, I'm not a communist or a socialist or bagging on that sort of stuff. We're pointing to the word of the Lord here. It's not like a redistribution of all this wealth and all the social justice is going to make our lives significantly better either. It's not like taking a huge amount of wealth from one group of sinners and giving it to another group of sinners is going to make the world any better. But 
But when God comes and He brings this curse, He's putting a stop to this pattern and trajectory that Adam is accelerating on of a value system that debases everything that is good and gracious and beautiful that God has created. And increasingly is consumed by a value system about what serves me well this minute and this moment. And he points him back to this truth. That life is a precious gift. And that the good things in life and the value and worth of a life is determined by the holy love of God. It is God's love, brothers and sisters, that gives value to something or someone. And it gives value through the blessing and gift of His Word. Without which there is nothing and there is nothing good. Including you, including me, and including the very ground we walk on. The Lord God is pulling Adam with this curse back to Genesis 1. And to understand the curse, you have to understand what blessing is. And we live in a time and an era where blessing is just messed up. Our definition of blessing, brothers and sisters, typically is what's good for me. I drive in, there's a parking spot ready for me right in front. I'm a blessed man. Rain doesn't fall on me, I'm a blessed man. My roommates treat me well and and get me chocolate and ice cream, I'm a blessed man. Right? That's, brothers and sisters, how we tend to use that idea of blessing. I get the job I want, I get the spouse I want, I get the family I want, I am a blessed man. But as we come back to Genesis 1 and 2, which is where the curse is taking us, because before you can appreciate what God's curse is, you have to understand what His blessing is. God's blessing and the blessing of God's Word is something remarkably different. Very much so, our definition of blessing is very much the prosperity gospel. Our definition of blessing very frequently is based upon covetousness and greed, brothers and sisters. Not so the blessing of the Lord. In Genesis 1, and this is by way of review, what is there prior to God speaking? You can say it out loud. What is there prior to God speaking in Genesis 1? There's absolutely. Amen. There is absolutely nothing. In Genesis 1, 2, have a look at it. If you have your Bibles, go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. What does is, what is the Holy Spirit describe the earth as being prior to God speaking? It is without form, void, and darkness over everything. And in Genesis 1, who or what is it that creates and makes all things good? It is God and His Word. It comes up over and over and over again in case we missed it the first time. And who or what is the fount of every blessing? Drop down to verse 21 through 22. This is the first time in the Word of God that the word blessing is used in Scripture. Verse 21. Go to the very end of verse 21. It says, And God saw that it was good. 
And he's referring to the life and the living creatures he has just created by his word to fill the heavens and the seas. And God saw that it was good. End of verse 21. Verse 22. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. Now here, unlike the blessing of the American dream and the prosperity gospel of what's good for me, blessing is the gift of God's holy love that is given through His Word. As we look closely at the end of verse 21, we see that blessing follows God's statement that He saw that it was good. And blessing is the affirmation, brothers and sisters, of what is good Not according to my fallen desires or need, what is good according to God's Word. What God's Word sees and says, this is good. Brothers and sisters, in your life God may see that you need a little pain and suffering. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about a thorn in the flesh that he asked the Lord three times to remove. And the Lord declined. Thorn in the flesh. Thorn in Genesis 3. Something that hurts. Something that slows us down. Something that is a product of the curse. And why did the Apostle Paul say he needed that? To keep me from being conceited. You men who are going into seminary. The blessings you will receive and the joy of beholding Christ are wonderful. But it's not infrequent that the Lord brings thorns into your life to keep you humble and gracious and close to Him so that you will see that His grace is sufficient And that God's strength and the power of the gospel is what you need, not the power of your intellect, your talents, or your abilities, or your Bible knowledge. So that you might not boast. Brothers, that's a blessing. It's not the blessing that we're usually chasing after, but that's a blessing. Because that is good according to God's Word. Because it's conforming you into the image of His Son. Blessing, brothers and sisters, in God's hand is what is good according to God's Word. And that is why our Lord and Savior said to His Father in Heaven, Father, if you can take this cup away, but not my will be done, but thy will be done. Well, in verse 21 through 22, it is the blessing of God's Word, not my initiative or work, that yields the fruitfulness and the fullness of the life and love of God's Word. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas. And what we see the Lord is doing here is His blessing is what enables His creation to be fruitful and to be full of God's life and His love and to share that life and love with others and to fill the world with His life and love. It's a blessing, brothers and sisters, like God's holy love that is about giving and about grace rather than greed and taking. 
No surprise, brothers and sisters, that is the blessing that took Jesus to the cross on your behalf and mine, because it wasn't good or convenient for our Lord and Savior. And as you drop down, brothers and sisters, to Genesis 1, 27 through 28, God uses the exact same language and grammar of blessing again. And He uses it in the description of the creation of the first man and woman in His image. Have a look at verse 27. It says, So God created man in His own image. And then drop over to verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And here's the addition which distinguishes the first man and woman from the other creatures. Subdue it. And we see for those who are blessed with the image and likeness of God, to them also is given not only the gift and blessing of God's life and His love, but also the gift of His Lordship. And that gift of His Lordship and rule and authority over all of creation is given to them not to keep it to themselves, not to exploit, not to be a tech or an oil billionaire. It's given, brothers and sisters, so that the first man and woman can be filled with the life and love and lordship of God, and so that they in turn can share that in their family, and so that they in turn can share that with all of creation, to give God's goodness, His truth and grace to the world. And as we come to Genesis 2, the Lord God shows us exactly how He creates and blesses the first man. He gives us the details. Genesis 1, big picture. Genesis 2, details. And He shows us that He forms the first man from what? Genesis 2, verse 7. He forms us from the dust of the ground, or the first man from the dust of the ground. How many of you clean your homes? The things that we never are ever done with is dust, right? I don't know of what earthly value dust is, apart from giving us work to do. It is from the dust of the ground that the Lord forms the first man. And if you go to verse 9, it's out of the ground, the Lord God, it says, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and is good for food. And as you look at Genesis 1 and 2, what the Lord does is He brings living creatures out of the ground. He brings fruit and food out of the ground. He brings plants out of the ground. He blesses the ground and gives it life. And He does so for who? Is He doing it for Himself? does it for the first man and woman. He makes the ground come alive and gives it fertility and gives it life in order to bless and enable the first man and woman to hear and honor and obey His Word, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the world. Brothers and sisters, everything that the first man and woman need 
to love the Lord and to walk in His ways. The Lord God gives them through the blessing of His Word. Does that sound familiar, brothers and sisters? He even makes the dirt on the ground. Wonderful and beautiful and fruitful. So that they can carry out and enjoy the word of the Lord and the world he's created for them. And in this way, the Lord God shows the first man and woman in us. What blesses them and what makes them a blessing. What blesses them and makes them a blessing is not the first man and woman's beauty, intelligence, education, career, network, or net worth, excuse me, or how hard they work. All the things that we work at, brothers and sisters, to make ourselves valuable and attractive to others. None of these things are the things that bless the first man and woman or make them a blessing. It is the Word of God that takes and blesses a handful of lifeless dirt and enables it to live and breathe and bear and share the image and the likeness and the beauty and the goodness and the truth and the grace of God's Word with the world. Do you feel bad about your body self-image? Do you feel that the Lord made you too short or too tall? Or not smart enough? Or not attractive enough? Brothers and sisters, the good news of God's word is that what blesses his people and makes them a blessing to others to give life and love and the things that last for eternity They do not come from the things that men value or the things of this world. They come from the Lord and they come from His Word. This is a lesson that Julie and I try to impart to the premaritals and those who come to us for dating advice over and over again. What we remind them repeatedly is that the things that you cherish and that you value chemistry, whatever you want to talk about it, we click together, okay, she thinks I'm great, I think he's great, we like the same movies, we like the same food, we like to do all the same things. Okay, listen, there's nothing wrong with liking to do the same things. But brothers and sisters, you talk to any married couple in this building, and they will tell you that after a couple of kids, those things... They don't amount to a hill of beans in the things that really give joy and encouragement and strength, especially when times are hard. Brothers and sisters, through this curse, the Lord is pointing the first man and woman and showing them that the blessing and gift of God's word is what we really need. And without God's word, we have nothing and we are nothing but dirt. And this, brothers and sisters, is what the curse of the ground is all about. And this brings us to our final point for this morning. God's curse shows us what we are 
and what we so desperately need. God's curse shows us what we are and what we so desperately need. If the blessing of God's Word is an affirmation of what is good according to God's Word, if the blessing of God's Word is a gift of His love that fills our life with His life and His love and His Lordship, If the blessing of God's Word is a gift so that we can be a blessing to others. The curse of His Word is a condemnation and a judgment of what is not good according to God's Word. It's a condemnation and a judgment of what is not good according to God's Word. And it is a condemnation and judgment that cuts off what is not good from the blessing of God's Word. It's a separation. It's a drawing of the line. And God starts drawing the line very early. So why then does the Lord God curse the ground? Well, in verse 17, the Lord God explains, it is because of Adam. It is because of who Adam is, and it is because of what Adam has done. And by choosing to listen to the devil's lies and eating of the tree, which the Lord God has commanded him not to eat, Adam is choosing to become a child of the devil's lies, as opposed to a child of God's word. And by taking something that the Lord God had created for good from the ground. By taking something that the Lord God had created for good from the ground. Something that the Lord God had created and blessed with His Word. But said to the first man, you shall not eat of it. When Adam goes and takes that, He's using for his own personal gain and advantage. Something God created as good, but he said by his word that the first man was not to take it. Brothers and sisters, how often do we take God's good things And use them in a way that they were not intended to be used. According to God's word. In a way that is not good according to God's word. How often do we take something good. And pursue it as if it is the best. How often do we take something good and use it. So that we can have an independence and autonomy and a separateness from the world and the laws that God has created. How often do we take our work? How often do we take our families? How often do we take our relationships? How often do we take our church or our ministry and use it? For something that God has either forbidden or does not condone. When Adam does that, he is essentially an idolater who is 
celebrating the idolatry of what God has created. He's celebrating the blessing over the blessor. Or the gift over the one who has given it to him. He's taken this fruit and he is using it in order to be like God. It's his ticket to independence. And as he does so, brothers and sisters, not only does he defile his own heart with his covetous sin, but he also defiles and debase what God has created and blessed for good. The fruit of that tree was never intended to be used for Adam and Eve to live a life independent of God's Word. And brothers and sisters, this is what we all do when we take something good that God has created and blessed and we separate it from God's Word. And we use it contrary to God's Word or what is good according to God's Word. Physical intimacy, family, work, ministry, food, education... By the curse, the Lord God is coming to the first man and He's showing him, not only have you stained your own heart, but you've defiled and taken something good and turned it into something evil. A tool to take you and your wife away from the goodness and the truth of God's Word and to live a lie. And as we do this, brothers and sisters, not only do we bring God's condemnation and the condemnation of His Word upon ourselves, we bring it on the gift as well. And brothers and sisters, we we, we see this on a regular basis, do we not? We see this with young men who, or old men, or men in general, who defraud, or who abuse, or who take advantage physically. Right? Right? And we see the condemnation and the guilt and the stain that gets spread around with those things. You know, because of obviously my past as a physician, I always go back to that place. But I just think of, you know, surgical tools. When they're stained or they're damaged, if you can't clean it or make it better, you throw them out. Why do you do that? Because it's not just a problem that they're defiled or contaminated. Part of the problem is that when you use them, they defile everything else they touch. So we have to shut down operating rooms. What God created and blessed for good is not to be used for our selfishness, sin, and idolatry. And so the Lord God lets Adam know, you are not going any further with this. Cursed is the ground. This ground from now on has been made evil and defiled by you. And now it is cut off from the blessing of God's Word. And instead of the blessing of God's Word, it is going to be a testimony to what life is like when God's Word is removed or it is separate from the life and love and lordship of God. And everything before that was a gift and was pleasant and good, now that it has been used for evil, you're going to live that out. Instead of a blessing, it will become a curse. And in this way, God shows us who we are 
and what we so desperately need. And brothers and sisters, do our habits and patterns and the things in our life, do they not speak to this truth and reality of who we are and what we so desperately need? Our agendas, our ministries, our work, all of these different things that we become slaves to. And many times we exalt. One of the examples very frequently in the church is family and education. Those can become two of the biggest things that people use as an excuse for not honoring what God has called them to do. To simply hear and obey God's word. I can't do it because I've got to work. You understand I couldn't do this for this person or I couldn't obey God's word because I had work. Or because of my family. Brothers and sisters, work and family were never given to you to be an excuse for not loving God and loving one another. And when we do that, brothers and sisters, we've defiled the gift. We are defiled and we are defilers. We show that we are children of the devil's lies and sinners who defile everything we touch with lives of futility and foolishness. Brothers and sisters, the curse shows us who we are and what we so desperately need. And what do we so desperately need? It's what we sang about, brothers and sisters, this morning. You don't need just a new worldview. You don't need just a new way of thinking. You don't need to say, okay, we're going to give more, we're going to do more, and we're going we're gonna to think, you know, in a, in a better way about other people. Brothers and sisters, the point of the curse, it shows as defilers... And defiled. We need an entirely new life and a new heart and a new mind and a new soul. And the life that we need, brothers and sisters, is the life of nothing less than the life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the cost of that life, brothers and sisters, is for Him to take the curse of our sin on the cross. And we miss this point, brothers and sisters, because we believe we're saved and we keep on thinking and doing the way we used to do. Same job, same work, same career, same goals, same worship, same pragmatic ministries. And I say this, brothers and sisters, because I struggle with it myself. Julie will tell you. The elders will tell you. I'm a pragmatic man by nature. That's my sin. I need to put that off and not entertain that at all and say this is a lie from the pit. Everything I need, God has given me through the beauty of Christ and His Word. Because when I go down that path, brothers and sisters, what I say is Christ is not that beautiful. Christ is not that good. His death on the cross is not that sufficient. I need all these other things too. Jesus plus all these other things. And surprise, surprise, brothers and sisters, the Lord God allows our lives to be difficult. And He brings hurt and sorrows and difficulties in our lives. And make no mistake, it comes from His hand. Why? Because good, brothers and sisters, is what is good according to His Word. You have afflicted me so that I might learn Your Word. Before I was afflicted, I went away from Your Word. And it's why the Apostle Paul is able to say, I'm able to boast in my weakness, because when I am weak, then I am strong. Why? Because for Paul, the power that he needed was not the power of his intellect, and he was a bright guy and all his giftedness. The power he needed was the power of the gospel. 
the power that justifies and saves sinners like you and I and gives us a new life so that we can think differently, act differently, choose differently, so that we can learn from Jesus how to live and not go back to that same way. And brothers and sisters, the proof of the new life in you that you're no longer defiled and defiling, is the very test of what we talked about last week. Do you hear God's Word and do you obey it? Is the testimony of your life fruitful? Are you blessed and are you a blessing to others? And brothers and sisters, many times the places that we bless others the most is when we're suffering or things are hard. And you go over and visit that person who's getting pounded and you walk away and say, Wow, I was encouraged. Because what they see and what is precious to them and what they realize is the only thing that matters is Christ and His Word. And that's why Jesus says in John 15:5, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This, brothers and sisters, is what Jesus demonstrated in Mark 5, what we read this morning. Where an unclean man, filled with many demons, comes to Jesus. And Jesus casts out those demons, and that man is cleaned up and transformed. And he goes away to a Gentile territory, praising the Lord, and sharing with others what the Lord has done in his life. Brothers and sisters, what do you need? What are you looking for in this life? At the end of the day, brothers and sisters, everything we need, the Lord has given us in His Son and in His Word. Is that your treasure? Is that your gift? Is that your glory? Are there areas in our lives that we need to repent of and come to the Lord and look to Him and ask for His help? Realizing that what we need, brothers and sisters, is a completely new heart and a new life and a new Savior and a new Lord. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, It's hard to say that we can thank you for a curse, but for the curse that shows us, Lord Jesus, how beautiful and good you are, and how desperately we need you, and how all the things that clamor for our attention in this world are just scubalon and rubbish. Lord Jesus, thank you for these things. Would you grant us, Lord Jesus, hearts of repentance? Would you give us hearts, Lord Jesus, that are able to enjoy to the fullest that everything that we need and everything that is good we have in you and in your word. In your name we pray. Amen.